We live, we love, we serve. Now, not all sermons have titles, but for today, I do have a title for my sermon. It's Stand in Your Hope. Stand in Your Hope. And it's not a wish. It's not like I wish I was a little bit taller. I wish I was a baller. I wish I had a girl. It's not a wish. But our hope, our hope, I want to define it because language is very important. And one of our philosophers, philosophers, I can't say the word, philosopher says, yes, that uh, language is just as complicated as the organisms of the body that we have. So I want to define what I mean by hope. Hope for me, the hope that I'll be talking about is not only a bringing together or an eager anticipation of something, but it comes along with a sense of optimism. The idea of working towards something or working towards a goal. It's something you have to participate in doing, right? And it's also essential for a positive and lasting change. So that's what I mean by hope when I talk about standing your hope. We can stand in our hope because we have access to God's healing grace. Stand in our hope because we're a recipient of God's overflowing love, because we believe God is a promise keeper, and we believe in God's enduring anointing in our lives. And today the text that I'll be coming from is Isaiah 61, one through four. I'll be reading NRSV and then the message. The spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. God has sent me to bring good news to the oppressed, to bind the brokenhearted, to proclaim liberty to the captives, to release the prisoners, to proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God, to comfort all who mourn, to provide for those who mourn in Zion, to give them a garland instead of ashes, the oil of gladness instead of mourning, the mantle of praise instead of a faint spirit. They will be called oaks of righteousness, the planting of the Lord to display his glory. They shall build up the ancient ruins. They shall raise up the former devastations. They shall repair the ruined cities, the devastations of many generations. And then from the message, and I won't pray, I already prayed. The message says, the spirit of God, the master. And the spirit we're talking about here is the breath of God, right? The anointing of God. The spirit of God, the master is on me because God anointed me. God sent me to preach, preach the good news to the poor, heal the brokenhearted. Now the anointing, I just want to say the anointing here is really kind of being dipped in oil, right? You, to preach not only to the masses outside, but you have to preach to yourself too, right? To heal the brokenhearted or the heartbroken, announce freedom to all captives, pardon all prisoners. God sent me to announce the year of his grace, a celebration of God's destruction of our enemies and to comfort all who mourn to care, 
to pay attention to the needs of all who mourn in Zion. And Zion is a place where God dwells. Not only does God dwell there, but that's a place God has set for us to dwell as well. And to give them bouquets of roses instead of ashes, messages of joy instead of news of doom, a praising heart, a praising heart instead of a languid spirit, rename them oaks of righteousness. I'll get into this later on, it's, it's a term. Rename them oaks of righteousness planted by God to display God's glory. They'll rebuild the old ruins and raise a new city out of the wreckage. Stand in your hope. It's for me to stand in my hope and for each of you here today to stand in your hope. Now, I figured, since this is a very personal and we're talking about standing in your hope, I'd share a little bit about myself and share maybe three phases of my life, three ways in which I've been able to stand in my hope. And the first, the first phase I wanna talk about, I named it My Son Lou. And uh, in, in the verse, it says, the spirit of the Lord God is upon me because the Lord has anointed me. So in my son, Lou, I have learned to find my anointing. Not only is anointing being dipping oil. Let me give you the metaphor first. When I was thinking about this, I like to cook, right? Especially I like to make meat. And when I make meat, whether it's oxtails or ribs, chicken, turkey, fish, the first thing I do is anoint my food in oil. I put in oil all around it, all covered in oil, and then I season it. And I let the seasoning sit. I mean, if I really wanted it to be good, I try to let the seasoning sit for like a week, right? And the anointing we have by God is the same thing. We have been dipped in oil. God has dipped us in oil dipped us in oil and let his spirit, his love, his grace marinate in us. Think about that. that that's, that's the anointing that we have, the love that we have, the love that God has for us. And not only have we been anointed in that way, but we've been chosen. We've been chosen by God. Being chosen is, it's an amazing thing, being chosen. We've been chosen. God, every day, despite our failures, despite the pains, despite the times we may hurt God and not make God smile, continues to choose us, continues to come back for us. And I see it in another way too. It makes me think of Genesis, the beginning, how we were made in the image and the likeness of God. He chose us, God chose us, and made us in God's image so that we can go out and bring love to others. Now I said that I started in phase of my son Lou, so I'll tell you how. Um, Lou's 24, 
He's a, he's a, he's a grown man. And uh, so, so I'm, I'm pretty old. I'm not that old. But I had Lou when I was young. We found out when I was around 19 that Lou was going to be born. And the first thing we did, we decided that we had to tell our parents, right? So my girlfriend, she went and told her mom. I went and told my parents. And they both came to the same decision. They decided, and I say that it's not, it's not because of a lack of love, but it's because the way they were brought up in the church, they decided that the best thing to do was to kick us out the house. We were homeless, um, probably around February or March. February or March, we were homeless. We had to figure out what we were gonna do. So the first thing we did was figure out how to live on the trains, right? Figure out what train station was safe to sleep in at night. Figure out which train had the longest ride so we could sleep in peace. And that's what we had to do. I'm sorry, going back and really thinking about this here. Um, but I started with we're standing in our hope. And I said that our parents loved us. So although we were homeless, when we got hungry, when we had nothing to eat, when we were so dirty that we felt itchy, we got out and we went to my parents' house. There was a window that was never locked. And I, I had known it my whole life because I forgot my keys a lot of times when I was a kid. And I'd climb up to the roof, open that window, go around and unlock the door so my girlfriend could come in. And then we'd eat the food that was in the fridge. And then we'd shower. And then we'd go back. Now, obviously, when I was 19, I didn't consider that my parents knew that I was eating from their fridge. But even though they weren't able to give us provision of living in a home, when we were hungry, there was food there to eat. And it helped. It helped during the time when we were hungry. And it helped to give us some strength when we, when we were hungry. And the next phase, we went from being homeless to being squatters. We knew a family member that was being kicked out of their home. They were being evicted. And they told us they were being evicted. And they told us we could move into their apartment while they went somewhere else. So we had a roof over our head. We had water. We had a shower. And what that did, it allowed for me to get a job. It allowed me for me to get a job. Now, as a squatter, you're still worried about, especially being evicted, if you come back home, you might not be able to get into the apartment. You might not be able to get anything, but it allowed for me to get a job. 
And that job allowed us to move into a room. Now the room gave us some freedom. I didn't have to worry about the door being locked. I didn't worry about a lot of things. But while I was paying for because the two and a half of us or the three of us, I was paying for a lot of vermin to be there with us. A lot of roaches and rats. We literally lived in a crack house. We, everyone who lived in that apartment did drugs. And Lou was about to be born. And I, I just couldn't see him being born in that situation. It wasn't okay for me for him to be born in that situation. So I had to humble myself. I didn't think I did anything wrong. I didn't think that me being involved sexually with anybody had anything to do with my parents. But I humbled myself and I went back to my parents, particularly my dad. And I told him, or I asked for forgiveness. I said, I'm sorry for what I had done. But I wanted the opportunity to move back in to his basement because roaches, rats, people likely breaking into our room, I, I, it, wasn't, it wasn't the thing I wanted from my son. I wanted something more. I wanted something safer. I wanted some place where he could start out his life in a different path than in that route. And life continued, you know, life just keeps life. So we were in the house. We grew up a little bit, you know, all what toddlers do, play, dance carried everywhere because he liked to be carried just like my daughter. And then kindergarten came. And when he got into kindergarten, I became a single father. And everything I did, everything I did was because of Lou, was for Lou, was to care for Lou. Now I had some, some good work opportunities some good opportunities, right? I had tested for MTA and tested to be part of the police department. And there was a position that started at $90,000 that I got. But I didn't have the support to take the job. I didn't have the support that somebody would be there for him because it was a job where I was on call, right? And what I decided to do then was to take a job that would allow me to drop him off at school, that would allow me to be back home by 5.30 or 6 o'clock when daycare closed, that would allow for the days that school were closed, the days he was on vacation. I had to take a job where I could bring him to work with me. I became a real estate agent. And Lou came with me. Sometimes when I had to show apartments in Manhattan, I'd carry him along with me. My, uh, my boss then got to like him and I could leave him at work. When I did some walking up six flights of stairs in Manhattan, um, and it was good. 
And life kept on lifing until he got to about second grade. And there was a while when his mom wasn't around, but she started coming around and he started going to see her on the weekends. And unbeknownst to me, there was uh, some talk in his ear, right? You're too much for your dad. He can't handle taking care of you. When you come here on the weekends, you have so much more fun anyway. It'd be better for you to live with me. And then Lou came and asked me, he said, I don't know whether it was Pops or Daddy at that time, but Daddy, I don't live with you anymore. I'd rather go and live with Mom. And it's something I had to really think about. I didn't want him to go. But I was stuck really between a rock and a hard place. I had gone to my grandfather and a couple of other senior people in my life. And the advice they told me is, if I don't let him go, he's gonna hold it against me. And if I let him go, he's gonna hold it against me. But at least he's made the choice. So I decided that I was gonna let him move for some mom. And life kept going. I saw him every weekend, right? He came and stayed with me every weekend. <clears throat> every vacation he was with me or he went to see his grandma in Georgia, Texas, or Florida, wherever you were, mom. Um, and things kept going on. And then when he got to be a preteen, things shifted again. Like our, our relationship really started sour. Our relationship started to sour. He was growing up, he had questions. And there was a lot of distrust. There was just a lot of, a lot of things permeating the relationship. But I did what I had to do. I kept showing up. I kept showing up for him. I kept seeing him. And I remember one day, he and I were alone. I don't remember where we were. But he was like, Dad, you don't know me. You don't know who I am. And what I told him, I remember. I said, Lou, I'm right here in front of you. And if you tell me who you are, I'm here to listen. This is the way God shows up for us. This is the way. If we distrust God and get angry at God, if we've done something, God is always there to listen to us, to hear us, to lift us up, and to be with us. That is why I think you can stand in your hope. That's what helped me to stand in my hope. What I did with Lou, I saw that as a father, I did it with Lou. As a father, I chose Lou. In the same way, God chooses us. Now the next phase of my life, it's, it's called, I was an epileptic. And uh, in verse three, it talks about being renamed Oaks of Righteousness, about being renamed by God. Now being renamed by God is a big deal. Immediately, I think about Abram and Sarah, who became Abraham and Sarah. I think about Jacob, who Pastor Lakeisha spoke about a couple of weeks ago, right? Who was a cheater and deceiver, who was turned or named Israel. And all three of them became fathers and mothers of nation. It was a symbolic shift, the name change. 
It was symbolic transformation. It was a new identity. It was a special calling from God. It was a shift in their purpose. It was a shift in their destiny. And it was a shift in their relationship with God. And in the same way, we can be renamed. And those things happen to us. A shift in our relationship with God. It says you will be called oaks of righteousness. It's a big deal. Now, oak trees are revered. They're very important. Well, I don't want to say, for me, they're important when I read the scripture. It, it, it became very important to me to be seen and renamed as an oak tree. And it's not that they have long lifespans, although they live about 300 years. The fact is that they're deeply anchored in the soil, just like you and I are deeply anchored in God. And because they're deeply anchored in the soil, they're able to grow, they're able to be flexible, right? When rain comes, when wind comes, they're able to move back and forth because they're anchored in the Lord, because they're anchored in the ground. The same way we could shift back and forth and we don't fall down because we're anchored in the Lord. And not only are they anchored and flexible, but one of the things that they're able to do is almost rejuvenate themselves. When insects come, when any, any of the things of life that come against the oak tree, they're able to get the scales off, get the scabs off and be rejuvenated. And it's the same way because we've been called and anointed by God. When we fall down, when we get hurt, we're able to be lifted up. And one of the ways that I was lifted up and says I wasn't epileptic is through my, uh, through my child's with epilepsy. Now, I was 18. Well, first time I found out that I was epileptic. No, it was a regular thing. I had been sleeping and couldn't get up. My parents tried to get me up. They thought I had partied too much the first couple of times. They called my friends and asked, was I doing drugs? It's a lot, of, a lot of things. And then I went to the doctor. And they said it was epilepsy. And it tore me apart. One of my best friends growing up was my cousin Robert. Now, Robert was a grown man. And he was my best friend. But when he was a child, he had had lead poisoning. And the lead poisoning caused him to have mental disability. For me, I didn't know that when I was five, six, four years old. I just saw someone that played with me, someone that loved me, someone that cared for me and protected me, somebody I loved. But there was something else I saw. I saw how people made fun of him. People would call him stupid and retarded. They would act like he wasn't able to understand when they spoke to him. And I realized that when, when preparing for this, that what bothered me the most, what scared me the most, what actually brought me into a depression was that I didn't want my humanity to be taken away like that. As a black man growing up in America, with all the trials that I face, with automatically people seeing me as bad or negative, to have another part of my humanity taken away, 
and I didn't want that. And that, that, that brought me into a depression. It brought me, it, it, it took me, I mean, it was bad, right? It was to a point where I was at work and if I had a seizure and I had, I had full on tonic clotic seizures. So I would, it was like the convulsating ones. My shoulder would pop out of the socket. Like it was, it was, it was that type of seizure. So it came to a point if I had that type of seizure at work, I was ashamed. And I didn't, I didn't want people to look at me differently. One experience that happened at work, I quit. I just couldn't go back. Right? I, I, I didn't know how to handle going back and people treating me differently. But it shifted. As I grew and matured, it shifted. And, you know, it would happen at work, be sent to the hospital, people would take care of me. And that was the start of my renaming. That was the start of me being renamed. What really shifted when I met my wife, Maria. Doctors had told me that I could have surgery. And it was a 50-50 chance that I'd likely keep the seizures after the surgery or it might, it might stop. And before meeting Maria, I didn't see the reason for somebody to cut into my brain, potentially cause more damage. Um, so I didn't do it. But when I met her, there was a shift in my life. There was a shift. And I said, man, if I keep doing things the same way, it's never going to change. Let me try something different. And we went in for surgery. We thought it'd be one or two. <laughs> no, no. Um, I'll start at the beginning. It was first surgery. They go in, it's exploratory. They had told me in the past, I had fallen to the child, had a scar in my brain. That's where the seizures were coming from. So they drill holes in your skull, put, you know, tubes in there, and then they force you to have a seizure to see what's happening. And that was the first one. And they say, oh, the seizures are coming from your front left temporal lobe. So we're gonna have a more intense study. Now, more drilling, more probes, um, went in and found out it was in fact coming from my front temporal lobe, did tests to see if I'd be able to speak again if they took a portion of my brain out, like my cognitive function. And then we went forward with the third surgery where they went in and took that portion of the front temporal lobe out. And when they went in, they were shocked. No, no, no. The reason they were shocked is because I had a tumor. It had been a tumor that had been causing the seizures all that time. It was a benign tumor, but it was a tumor growing and putting pressure. And they took it out. And that was my third surgery. And I was supposed to go back in for a cranioplasty. That's when they put like a piece of metal or a piece of plastic to cover the holes in your head. And when I went back in for that surgery, they found out they had an infection. So they had to clean it out send me on my way and reschedule another cranioplasty. When they went in for the next cranioplasty, they found out I had another infection. Same thing, cleaned me up, 
This time they forgot, they forgot some stuff in there. Um, but they cleaned me up, sent me away, said, well, give it a while, bring you back in. I went back in for a cranioplasty, and when I woke up, I knew something was wrong. It had been too late. I was too cold. What they had found is that my skull was infected. So they had to drill a portion of my skull out, a portion about, about this big. They took my skull out. And then they said, we're gonna wait a couple of months, make sure you're healed, and then we'll try this cranioplasty again. And what happened really helped me to stand in my hope right before the seventh time around. Now I had been praying, I had been praying, my family had been praying, but before the seventh surgery, I was having surgery on Tuesday, Sunday, I asked for pastor of the church to pray for me. And when I went down for prayer, something felt different. And then he touched my head. He touched me on this side. He touched my head. And as he touched my head before he said anything, I knew I was healed. I knew I was healed. I don't know what did it, but I just knew. I knew I was healed. And as he started praying, what I realized is even if even if there was a portion of me that was hopeless, that lacked hope, that because I was in a community that was holding me up in prayer, because there were other people praying with me, that I could find hope to stand on. And you're in a community here at FCBC. You're in a community here. And that's why all of you here today and all of you watching online I say to continue to stand in your hope because you've been renamed. And then there's a third phase, a third phase. Verse four says, rename them oaks of righteousness planted by God to display God's glory. The next part I, I call becoming Reverend Doctor. Or, for you, you are God's glory. I am God's glory. And, you know, I was a smart kid. I was pretty good at school. You know, I tested it and got into Brooklyn Tech. After Brooklyn Tech, I went to Polytech, one of the best engineering schools. But then life happened and school stopped. So I had to stop going to school. But in order to get myself to where I am today, I had to slowly go back. I had to slowly work on my education, not necessarily school, my education. And it involves a lot of things, education. I, I read books, right? Different books I hadn't read before. I did some somatic classes dealing with the body. I went to therapy. Therapy helped, but most importantly, most importantly, I grew spiritually. I, I, I was able to glean or get a new relationship with God, right? Start a new relationship with God in a way that I was able to live the life I was supposed to be living, right? Live the life I was created to live. 
I did other things. I went to, you know, I got my Series 763. I did real estate. I became a real estate agent. And then specifically in, in getting to build my relationship with God in a new way, I had a conversation with Maria one day and I said, Maria, I just want to be able to share with God. I wanted to be able to share God with people differently than the way I learned when I was growing up in church. So I went to seminary. I started a certificate program. After the certificate program, I went for my Masters of Divinity. And in May, I'll be graduating with my doctorate in ministry. Now, there's a non-canonical um, text, the Gospel of Mary. And I, I, I take it in this way. The Gospel of Mary says, clothe yourself. Clothe yourself with the perfect human. And in my being able to get deeper into a relationship with God, I was starting to clothe myself in the perfect human. I was starting to clothe myself in, the, in good news, good news for myself that I could share with others. I had to persist, right? Because as life happens, there are times when I cried, when I weeped, when I thought I couldn't make it. Times when I thought, I'm just gonna give up. Times of heartbreak. Right, there are different types of heartbreak. Marie asked me, what kind of heartbreak? Times when I thought I was gonna get a job that would help pay, help support the family, I didn't get it. Personal heartbreak with friends. Heartbreak in the doubt that I had in myself and learning to overcome that, right? Learning to overcome these things was a renaming, was a renaming for me. And I'm sure all of you, everyone here, has felt the same thing. Times when you doubted yourself, times when you thought you couldn't make it. Maybe it's even happening right now. But I want you to know that you are renamed. You are anointed. And most of all, you are standing in God's glory. You, you are the display of God's glory. You are renamed and will eternally, eternally be planted and anchored in God's love. And what that means is that you'll be able to fight the battles. You'll be flexible. Even when you're about to fall down, you'll be able to stand back up. Even when you get cut and there's scabs and there's pain, you're able to rejuvenate you'll be able to move to a new place and grow in your love with God and grow in your relationship with God and to really put on that perfect human. I'm about to be done here. I'm about to be done. Since you're anointed, since you are renamed, since you are in God's glory, I ask you all to stand in your hope. Now, I don't usually do this, but I'm gonna turn to your neighbor, please to the neighbor in the left and right and say, I can stand in my hope. Turn to your other neighbor. I can stand in my hope. 
I want you to stand in your hope because you are anchored in God's love. And then I want to remind you, if you can't stand in your hope all by yourself, look around you. You have a community that is praying for you, that is wanting the best for you, that loves you. You have a community here to lift you up when you can't stand in your hope. So if you can't stand in your own hope, stand in the hope of your community. Stand in the hope of your community and you'll be able to take the next step. You'll be able to go on one step at a time. Stand in your hope because of the goodness of God. We live, we love, we serve.